So I, I thought I'd begin tonight with a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh, given that you all have been practicing um, all day today, beginning at 5.30 this morning or whenever it was you got up till now. That's a pretty long work day, isn't it? You've been practicing all day and you've been on the front lines of your own mind. You've had the opportunity to see what it is you're working with, really see it, and hopefully not be too discouraged. Hopefully, as we practice, we see that it's not just my mind, but it is the mind, this human mind. So here's a poem to help you with that understanding. It's called Froglessness. The first fruition of the practice is the attainment of froglessness. When a frog is put on the center of a plate, she will jump out of the plate after just a few seconds. If you put the frog back again on the center of the plate, she will again jump out. You have so many plans. There is something you want to become. Therefore, you always want to make a leap a leap forward. It is difficult to keep the frog still on the center of the plate. You and I both have Buddha nature in us. This is encouraging. But you and I also both have frog nature in us. That is why the first attainment of the practice, froglessness, is its name. How many of you have attained this today, froglessness? Or was there a bit of jumping about? Did you see it? Yes. How many were jumping today? Oh, lots of leapers. Yes, we see the human mind at work, leaping here, leaping there. So tonight I want to talk about mindfulness. This meditation is called Mindfulness Meditation. And I want to talk about it, not theoretically, but look at it in, in, in the way in which we actually experience it. So we're going to do a little bit of an exercise here at the beginning. I'd like you to put your hands out in front of you. Now, there are different ways that we can connect with the experience of just having our hands out in front of us. One way that we can connect is that as we look at our hands, we may notice that we're telling ourselves a bit of a story about these hands. We like our hands, or we don't like them. They seem to remind us perhaps of a parent. We have our father's hands, they said, or we have our mother's or our Uncle Charlie's or some some family lore around the kind of hands that we have. Or we feel that uh, we haven't taken as good care of our hands and we need to improve our grooming. Or we have some little judgment of our hands or we like our hands or we don't like our hands. This is called the story we tell. And we do it about a lot of things, and we can even do it here. Another way to connect with these hands is through what is called the direct experience. 
to experience our hands directly in this moment might be to sense into the felt sense of your hands as you're holding them out in front. It might help to close your eyes and feel or tune in to the felt sense. What do your hands feel like in a more direct way? Perhaps tension, perhaps a subtle throbbing, perhaps lightness or coolness or tightness. This is a more direct way of connecting with your hands. Okay, you can put your hands down. In the first way of connecting, we're telling a story. We are thinking about our hands. We're referencing memory, the past. In a more direct way, we are experiencing the sensations that are present in our hands. And this is the way of mindfulness. This is what it means to bring mindfulness into the direct experience of this moment, this touch, this sound, this seeing, this hearing, this tasting, this smelling, that direct, immediate knowing is mindfulness. And this is what we've been encouraging in your practice today through the breath, directly experiencing the breathing body, directly experiencing the sensations of sitting in stillness, feeling all the different sensations of the body, sometimes painful, sometimes pleasant. This direct experience of ourselves is a very different way of orienting ourselves to our experience than we are taught in our uh, culture. Normally, we are caught up in telling ourselves a story, a story starring who? The ever-present me. And that story is usually about what we like, what we dislike. And it takes up a lot of airspace, that story. And so we fail to notice the more subtle, direct experience that we are having of ourselves in any moment of our lives. Part of what we discover with mindfulness is that we have a dual capacity to be with a very direct experience of whatever is present, and at the same time to be aware of what is present so that we can see and know that we are seeing. We can breathe and know that we are breathing. We can hear and know that we are hearing. We can even think and know that we are thinking. There's a story of a student who goes to his Zen master, and he asks his Zen master, he says, what is enlightenment? And the Zen master says, when walking, walk. When eating, eat. 
student scratches his head and says, but Master, everybody walks and everybody eats. And the Zen master replies, but not everyone knows when they walk. Not everyone knows when they eat. And that makes all the difference. That is the quality of mindfulness, this knowing, this knowing of our direct experience. So, why is this important? Why is this important? Because direct knowing in this way puts us in touch with reality. Reality as it is. Without the clarity which mindfulness brings, we believe instead in the story, the story of greed, the story of aversion, the misperceptions and beliefs that come with our delusion of not seeing clearly. We do not see things as they are when we are seeing through the lens of greed, of what we want, or in the lens of what we don't want, which we want to get rid of. We are not seeing clearly. So if we are interested in seeing clearly, then mindfulness is your direct line to reality, to seeing things as they are. Teacher um, Hamid Ali says it this way, the way we ordinarily see the world is not the way it really is because we see it from the perspective of our judgments and preferences, our likes and dislikes, our fears and our ideas of how things should be. So to see things as they really are, we have to put these aside. In other words, we have to let go of our mental evaluations. Seeing things objectively means that it doesn't matter whether we think what we're looking at is good or bad. It means just seeing it as it is. If a scientist is conducting an experiment, he doesn't say, I don't like this, so I will ignore it. He may not personally care for the results because they don't confirm his theory, but pure science means seeing things as they really are. If he says he's not going to pay attention to the experiment because he doesn't like it, that is not science. Yet this is the way most of us deal with reality, inwardly and outwardly. So that, that means that we, we really have to be committed to this idea of seeing what is true. That that, that that needs to be a strong intention in the mind. Otherwise, we'll go with what we like. Oh, I prefer to see things this way. I think I'll just coast along. Another story, also from the Zen tradition, A student said to his master, please write for me something of great wisdom. The master picked up his brush and wrote one word, attention. Uh, The student said, "Um, hmm, is that all? (laughs) So the master wrote again, attention, attention, 
attention. Iris Murdoch says, attention is rewarded by a knowledge of reality. That's what we get when we pay attention, a knowledge of reality. So again, to bring this into this situation a little bit more, uh, what did you notice in relationship to the storm today? Did you have any uneasy feelings at any moment during the day? Did you wonder what was going on? Did you have any anxiety about, you know, is it getting worse? Is it, is it clearing now? Oh, the sun is out. Is it clearing? Or were the, the sounds disturbing, the sounds of so much rain coming down, the rushing water, perhaps the thunder in the night, or the, the feeling of looking at the hills, are they going to stay where they are, you know? Were there any of those kinds of feelings? How many of you had some uneasiness today around the storm? Not too many. It's pretty amazing. Well, the tendency when we are at home and a big storm is coming is what? We get in the supplies that we know we're going to need. If we feel like we want to know what's going to happen, what the predictions are, we turn on the news. We have a lot of ways to kind of make ourselves feel a little bit more uh, comfortable, like we're going to be prepared for whatever eventualities come along. But here at Spirit Rock, you are a little bit unbuffered by those strategies, are you not? Here you are in silence. You can't even talk about it to your neighbor, like, did you hear that or... What do you think? Do you think Spirit Rock has this together? Or, you know, maybe we should get our bags packed and ready to flee. We don't often have the experience, being city dwellers, of living in this way in the middle of a a big storm, do we? We're usually a little more protected. I know I was sitting... Remember Y2K? Remember where you were during Y2K, the big non-event of the first <laughs> moment of the 21st century? But the build-up to it was quite exciting, wasn't it? And I was teaching at Insight Meditation that, that night. It was the New Year's retreat, and um, in honor of the, the, the first moment of the 21st century, Joseph Goldstein was giving a Dharma talk, and we were all sitting there in, you know, waiting for the talk, but also waiting for perhaps all the lights to go out, to be plunged into darkness. And, and they had told us ahead of time that, you know, if everything went awry, as were some of the predictions, that we would be living in the basement huddled together with the generators and the cold food, you know, for some time. So to be prepared, it was pretty exciting, not knowing which way it was going to go. But of course, we all know what happened. Nothing happened. Um, But it kind of pointed to that sense of how do we live in the midst of uncertainty? How do we live 
without knowing what's coming, what, how the storm is going to turn, how it's going to turn out. But we can notice that in our own experience, how often we think we know what's going to happen. But the reality is quite different, and mindfulness teaches us something about resting in that not knowing. That when we come into the hall, each time we come in here and sit down, you haven't a clue what's going to happen. You don't know, moment to moment, what may be coming. We live so much with the idea that we know that things are predictable and that we will we, we kind of know what's going to happen in the next hour. We don't know. We don't know anything. So we learn in practice to trust something else than this knowing, this imagined knowing of what's, what's going to happen. We learn to trust the, as we say, the, the unfolding of, of our experience moment to moment, that when we stay in touch with things as they are, moment to moment, we have some ground underneath us. We're not, we're not just floating freely out in the void. We have some ground underneath us. So we learn mindfulness, and why you all came here on retreat is this very reason. We learn mindfulness in only one way. And that is by practicing it, by practicing it. It is a hands-on kind of learning. It's not at all theoretical. You learn it by practicing with whatever arises in your experience. If strong sensations arise, if anxiety arises or grief or joy, or bliss, or depression, or loneliness, whatever arises in your practice, this is the moment when we put mindfulness to work and we learn how to, what it is, and how it helps us to meet all these various experiences. We learn that mindfulness is this capacity to know what is present. It is sometimes likened to a mirror. A mirror simply reflects what is put in front of it, right? A mirror doesn't have an opinion about what is put in front of it. If something ugly is put in front of a mirror, it doesn't say, oh, If something beautiful is put in front of a mirror, it doesn't want more of it. It simply reflects what is so. Mindfulness is the same. This is a a way of saying that mindfulness is neutral. Mindfulness is neutral. It doesn't have an opinion about what is arising in our experience. We are the ones who have an opinion. Oh. God, there's anger, I don't want to feel that. Oh, there's grief, I don't want that. Oh, there I go again, lost in that stupid story about my brother. Whatever it is that arises, we're the ones that have an opinion. 
Mindfulness has no opinion. It simply reflects what is so. And that is part of its power. It has that capacity to see clearly with an unbiased knowing. There's a sign at a monastery in Thailand of the Achan Cha, who was Jack Kornfield's teacher and kind of the, the grandfather in our lineage, Achan Cha. And there was a sign at his monastery for all to see that said, if you are still following your likes and dislikes, you haven't begun to practice. Now, I don't know about you, but at the beginning of my practice, I definitely was trying to follow what I liked and what I thought should be happening. And so I sought out uh, all kinds of exotic or seemingly exotic experiences. And this was way back in the 70s when there were many Asian teachers coming here and they, being unknown to us, seemed quite exotic, quite mysterious, many of them, in the ways they were teaching, in the rituals, the sounds, the chanting, the, the whole display seemed quite, wow, you know, wow, kind of like that. So I would try out different things, and I think I had the idea that, that this path was about having some big, amazing spiritual experience that would just change my life forever. It would just do, do it, you know. That would be, it would be done. So I had some pretty amazing experiences, but it, they weren't like that. They weren't like, now it's done. I sat at the Zen Center of Los Angeles for some couple of years, and um, before I found this tradition, I tried Zen, I tried some Tibetan practices, and I, I, I had some interesting experiences, but I actually had not, I never really had a clue as to what I was supposed to be doing. It was all very interesting, but for example, in the Zendo, they would shout at the beginning of a sitting, they, the only instruction that they gave was when they shouted, and it was, die on the pillow die on the pillow. And I would sit there and I would hear this and I would think, oh yeah, right, die on the pillow. I had no idea what it was, but it seemed important, so I did my best. And so it was quite a relief when I finally found Joseph and Jack, and they were like, you know, Westerners, and they, they spoke my language, and they said things, simple things, like, and now... Notice your breath. And I was like, oh, I can do this. <laughs> I can notice my breath. It was such a relief to finally have some instructions that were so simple, so direct, so immediate, and I could do them. I can't tell you what a relief it was. The Buddha, in his own way, had to find his path. And I've always thought that was very instructive because as a prince, when he left his home and he started seeking out the, the teachers of his day, he 
had many, he was exposed to many, a great variety of different methods and different spiritual experiences, and some of them advised going to extremes, like, you know, almost starving himself. There's pictures of him, you know, very emaciated and eating very little, and and that was one of the ways people thought they could have some kind of big spiritual experience, was through fasting. But, and he almost died, but eventually he, he kind of, something came to him. And the way it's described is that he had a memory of himself as a child sitting in nature and looking out at the spring, the fields, the flowers, sitting under a rose apple tree, he had a more intuitive sense of his oneness or his non-separation from all of life. And that experience made a deep impression on him. And so he remembered this during his ascetic time and he thought, that was closer to what I'm looking for than this more extreme practice of fasting. And so with that, he decided to redirect his energy and take some food, which to his colleagues, that was like, he was like betraying the, the, the cause, you know, he was falling off and going in the wrong direction. But nevertheless, he followed his intuition about what he felt was right for him. And he redirected his energies into what became known as the middle way the middle way between extremes, not going to one extreme or the other, but finding a way to practice and an understanding that came out of that practice that was based in not this, not that, but something perhaps less definable that became known as the middle way. So we all find our way in different, we all have different paths, but we do find our way. And we have the experiences, if we're open to it, that teach us. On one of my first long retreats, I had um, an experience of fear that made a huge impression on me because I didn't know that much about practice at the time, but the fear that, and the fear that came, I couldn't make any sense of it because I was in a beautiful setting such as here with wonderful, kind people all around me. And I had friends who were sitting the retreat. I, I felt, you know, on some level completely well taken care of in a beautiful setting. And yet all this fear was coming up in my practice. It didn't really have much content, but it was strong. And it made me think that something horrible was going to happen and that I had somehow gone awry and this was a big mistake. And shouldn't I stop or go home or get over it or something should change. And my teachers, um, who were Joseph and Jack at that time, instead encouraged me very much as we are encouraging you all 
to bring mindfulness to it, to bring a quality of meeting the fear and noticing as many as much about it as I possibly could. For example, noticing the story that fear tells. Fear is like a drug. Fear is a trance state. Fear takes us into uh, a kind of, um, well, a trance is the best way I can describe it. Where, And the story it tells us is very uh, believable. We believe the story of fear. We believe what it is telling us. And so we get we get caught in it quite easily. It's a very strong state. I learned how to feel the fear in the body, to identify it as sensation in the body. And when I could see that it was that was what it was, it was sensation and it came and it went, uh, it wasn't so solid anymore. So I learned a lot about what it means to explore a mind state with mindfulness. And one of the things I learned about it, about mindfulness during this time, were what we could call the three characteristics of mindfulness. Um, Or rather the three aspects of mindfulness, which are called its characteristic, its function, and its manifestation. These are important to know because I think the word mindfulness is used a lot these days, and we hear it kind of used casually, and it doesn't sound really like, it's it's sort of like used like remember to buy the butter at the store, be mindful to remember or be mindful of the step or something, you know. But actually, mindfulness as it is practiced in the Buddhist tradition is a very powerful, potent uh, force in the mind. So let me talk about these three aspects. The characteristic of mindfulness is called non-superficiality. This means that mindfulness is not casual, but actually penetrating. It is a way of looking deeply into our moment-to-moment experience, looking through the, the superficial appearances of how things seem on the outside. To, to, it's like putting something under the microscope of our attention so that what appears solid when we look under a microscope, we see it is actually quite fluid and quite, uh, it's like a a field of changing things. So for example, when we are looking at pain in the body, we we may, our first look at pain may be to think of it as solid, as something fixed and solid. But with mindfulness, this non superficial quality of mindfulness, we, we go into the pain, we find that pain is actually a label that we use, but that the reality of it is a, is a, it is a field of changing sensations, of ever-changing sensations. And we even notice that there's space inside the pain. It's not solid, it's not fixed. 
The function of mindfulness is called non-disappearance. And what this means is that we keep the object of our attention in view. We don't just skim over it. We don't just say, oh, there's pain, and then we're on to something else. But if it's very strong, we keep it in our field of attention. We keep coming back to it. We keep returning our attention to one thing. Why? Because the more we look, the more we look, the more we see. If we don't keep looking, we won't see what there is to be seen. The manifestation of mindfulness is called confrontation. This means not only returning our attention to what we are investigating, but being willing to meet it directly, meeting things directly, meeting whatever arises in a very, in this, with direct experience. This is the meaning of confrontation. We're not thinking about it, but really directly experiencing it, open to whatever shows itself. So all these aspects of mindfulness reinforce each other, the non-superficiality, the non-disappearance, and the confrontation. They all support each other. They support this, this ability we have with mindfulness to penetrate our experience rather deeply. And this is the power of this practice, vipassana. That word vipassana means insight. And mindfulness is the means of having insight. We have insight when we see more directly and in a more penetrating way the actual nature of what is here. So we can apply this understanding to whatever arises. And in the days to come, we will be opening, our, opening the practice to exploring more and more um, parts of our experience. We've started with the breath and the body and worked a little bit with pain. We'll begin to expand those instructions to include working with a variety of mind states that can arise in practice and with thinking, and with um, hearing. With, we may do some eating meditation, so that there's a sense of bringing this quality of mindfulness into all, all parts of our experience. And this is also its power. Sometimes when we are in the, the grip of uh, a strong mind state, in particular, it's very tempting to try to understand why it is being, why it is there. Like when I was experiencing fear on this, this one of my first retreats, I just couldn't figure out why I was feeling so afraid when all, you know, there was nothing really externally to be afraid of. And it, it's not a very fruitful exploration to try to know why something is here. From the point of view of mindfulness, it is more useful to ask what is appearing 
and how am I relating to it? Those are more significant ways of holding our experience than the asking of why. Why, the, of course, you know, people ask the Buddha many, many questions. Many of them were those kinds of why questions, why this, why that. And he would always discourage people from that kind of exploration, saying that ultimately, why is one of the imponderables? We live in a vast, complex, and mysterious universe which is still unfolding and has its own ways, its own uh, complexities, and asking why can lead us on a long journey of search without the immediacy of uh, relief that we are actually seeking in our spiritual practice. I'm not saying that there aren't areas of knowledge where asking why isn't very fruitful, but for our, to meet our spiritual needs, he always discouraged people from that kind of approach to relieving suffering, to say why, but rather what is it and how How can I meet it and how am I relating to it? Because ultimately what really helps in our practice is the kind of attitude that we bring. I've spoken about mindfulness as being neutral, but we find that so often that neutrality is, uh, we are blinded to that neutrality because of our attitudes, because we are so judgmental towards ourselves. We're so harsh, we're so critical, we're so impatient, we're so caught in uh, despair or feeling like I'm no good. So these attitudes that we bring to practice can really color our experience and perhaps lead us to feel, you know, very unworthy, very discouraged. So it's very useful for us as Westerners who are unfamiliar with these teachings. They weren't around when we were growing up. They weren't like part of the faith that we had in, in uh, the Buddha. Like if you grow up in Thailand or Burma or Sri Lanka or India, you, 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 you just can't, you just have, you're, you know, you're exposed to a certain level of confidence and faith in these teachings that we do not have. And so we need to work a little bit harder to um, increase that sense of confidence in ourselves that we can do these practices and that we can, we can uh, benefit greatly from having an attitude that is one of great kindness to ourselves, one of great patience, one of great uh, confidence that we can uh, find our way and that there are qualities of heart and mind that are waiting for us to develop, that are waiting to be developed, that are part and parcel of our potential as human beings. And that as we, even a little bit of um, time on the cushion can show us, can lead us to feeling 
uh, a greater sense of well-being. How many of you have had some moments of well-being today? Pretty good. That's not bad. Uh, so these moments encourage us, don't they? They, they say, oh, this is good. This, this, this I could take in. This I could have more of. This sense of, of a well-being that I can cultivate. And that's just the beginning. There are many other qualities that um, develop as we practice of greater forgiveness and compassion and generosity and delight and joy and equanimity and all these things that visit us when we keep practicing, when we keep developing this quality of direct experience and confidence in our own ability to see clearly, to know wisdom, to know compassion. So, so the attitude we bring to our practice, this it begins with a kind of perhaps uh, curiosity to know, perhaps openness to explore, to see what's here, to do this experiment called meditation and l- see where it leads us. We don't know where it's going to lead us. But given the popularity of retreats at Spirit Rock, given the fact that we've been here for 20-some years and more and more people seem to be finding value in this, I, I have strong confidence that you too will find value in walking this path. I'd like to end tonight with a story one of my favorite stories, it speaks to this uh, commitment that it's wonderful to develop, to cultivate these qualities of our heart. This is a, a story called Two Wolves. One evening, an old Cherokee man told his grandson about a battle that goes on inside of people. He said, My son, the battle is between two wolves that live inside us all. One wolf is anger, envy, jealousy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, lies, false pride, Superior, superiority and ego. The other wolf is joy, peace, love, hope, happiness, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. Grandson thought about it and then asked his grandfather, well, which wolf wins? The old Cherokee simply replied, the one you feed. So let's sit together for a moment.
Thank you for your attention tonight. Uh, we have about 45 minutes for some walking, and it's actually not. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.